Welcome to the Compassion Initiative podcast. And uh, my name's Stan Steindl and with me is James Kirby. Hi, Stan. Hello, James. And we also have the 2018 Science of Compassion class with us. Hello, everyone. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Very enthusiastic. Chris. Yeah. And James, I, I was listening to our podcast from last week and I was thinking to myself, why my voice goes, I change my voice or something uh, when I'm on a podcast. I create this voice that sounds very strange when I listen back to it. Oh, anyway. Um, I, think, I think it sounds lovely, uh, uh, your voice. Yes. We are each other's biggest, biggest fans, after all. But um, we had another wonderful couple of uh, presentations today. Uh, firstly, Connor uh, presented on Are Compassion-Based Interventions Useful? And Carla... Uh, presented, is it possible to be high in self-compassion and not compassion to others? Uh, what did you think, James, of the of the first presentations? Are compassion-based interventions useful? Yeah, no, Connor gave a, a, a great discussion today on um, the different compassion interventions that are available. So, you know, and there are many different uh, compassion interventions available that have been evaluated with randomised controlled trials. And he went through a bunch of the... Uh, the more rigorously evaluated ones, such as you know, compassion-focused therapy uh, by Gilbert and colleagues, uh, mindful self-compassion by Kristen Neff and colleagues, um, you know, co cultivating emotional balance by Ekman and Wallace, and and there are a couple of others in there. Of course, cognitively-based compassion training, which is particularly important for undergraduates dealing with uh, uh, stress and burnout, in order to try to help uh, build their resilience. We know there's a lot of uh, mental health struggle and difficulty. Um, in tertiary students, there's a lot of research currently coming out showing uh, how at risk uh, that particular population is. Um, and, you know, there were some of the, and obviously, compassion cultivation training from Stanford. Um, and it was interesting because the effects seemed to be really useful for um, helping, obviously, build compassion and self-compassion, but also trying to reduce some of the distress. Oh, yeah, thanks, Stan. Stan just let me know that I was hitting the table too much. <laughs> it's the dictaphone. <laughs> um, for recording. Sorry about that, everybody um, who's listening. Uh, so yeah, no, it was it was a good overview of the different interventions out there. And Connor very kindly uh, referenced our meta-analysis, uh, Kirby, Telligent and Steindl. So that was nice. Uh, and <laughs> lots of extra marks for that. But, um, but one of the things that really intrigued me in his presentation was the way that uh, we have found increases in compassion and self-compassion through mm. compassion-based interventions and mm. increases in mindfulness and well-being mm. and improvements in, in other psychological outcomes. Uh, but as yet, there's, there's not so much comparison with other therapies. Mm. How, how do these compassion-based interventions compare with um, other established psychotherapies, cognitive mm. behavioural therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy? Mm. Um, do you know anything about what's been done in that? in that area with comparison groups? Yeah, no, there, there certainly have been some. So, for example, you know, there was an exercise used for athletes who were incredibly self-critical and they were, they were assigned either to a, a self-compassion letter-writing task or they were assigned to a, a, a kind of cognitive restructuring kind of task. Um, and both had uh, uh, very... Uh, 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 what's the word, um, similar outcomes, but there was a difference in compassion. So it was compassion that was higher uh, within the self-compassion writing task and less rumination, actually. 
than the control. Um, that was by Moswich and colleagues. Mm. Uh, but there's also, of course, been the huge... Uh, and there, there are several other, several other examples, particularly in lab, a lab-based setting, where loving-kindness meditation will be put against a, um, a sort of a focused imagery control-based exercise. Um, but there aren't a huge great number of uh, active control comparison conditions although some are in the works currently. Mm. Um, and there are also lots of evaluation, service evaluations, where it's treatment as usual, which will be the service offering their streams of whatever the evidence-based treatment would be uh, within that hospital setting. But Tanya Singer's group, of course, uh, from the Max Planck Institute, has just done a massive uh, comparison looking at an intervention by comparing a compassion stream versus a mindfulness stream versus a perspective-taking stream. Um, they looked at you know, neuroimaging, uh, pre and post and follow up as well as a whole host of other measures. It's just a, an enormous trial. If you look up the resource protocol online, there's a whole range of different uh, freely available resources and books that you can download and, and check out, which I highly uh, recommend. Uh, but the one condition that was able to increase compassion was the compassion intervention. So it's kind of giving this you know, this kind of pushing forward this notion that unless you actively try to cultivate it, uh, it might not improve. Mm. The one little modest modest study that, that we did here at UQ with Jen Dingle and, and Susan Sorensen, who was the honours student, and Anthony Garcia, the, the guitarist, was looking at comparing loving-kindness meditation with music with loving-kindness meditation plus music. And... Um, yeah, we actually found, oddly enough, that uh, uh, all three groups improved the same amount, including on measures of, of self-compassion. So music itself might be, uh, you know, an intervention. Mm. The amount that people listen to the uh, meditations and or listen to the music did also predict how much things improved. So mm. um, I think it is a really interesting point you made about uh, having kind of you know, bona fide comparison groups to, to see how that all works. In that meta-analysis paper, we do include, I think, at least four or five studies that did have a, uh, an active comparison condition. Um, and the effect sizes you do see drop compared to when it's towards a wait list, which is what you'd expect. And the second uh, presentation by Carla today, is it possible to be high in self-compassion but not compassionate to others? And I, I definitely, especially in work, I do work with uh, other clinicians, nurses, psychologists and so on, often see the opposite kind of uh, thing where they might be, a person might be high in <coughs> compassion to others but not so high in self-compassion. But, but yeah, there was some interesting discussion about uh, this idea of being high in self-compassion and not so high in compassion to others. You made a really important point about the target matters. That, that, mm. that's, uh, and I, I was thinking about that too. Would you mind just elaborating again <laughs> on that? Um, well, you know, when we think about the definition of compassion, it's sensitivity towards suffering and self and others and trying to do something to alleviate it um, or prevent it if you, if you, if you can. Um, so, like, when it's the other, if it's someone close to you, it's often much more likely you're going to be compassionate towards them. It's much easier. However, I mean, that's also contrasting because uh, sometimes, and I think you posed this question the other week, um, you know, I can certainly think of family members who I'm really close to who it's certainly very easy to be compassionate towards. I think of my son, for example. 
But, you know, <laughs> just say it was someone else, like my brother. <laughs> He's kind of irritating me. Um, you know. <laughs> Hi there, James's brother, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> but you can have a, a, a relationship baggage, is what I'm saying. So, you know, if it's a father or a mother or anyone, you think just because they're family you're going to be compassionate towards them. But you might have a, a lessened sensitivity because of perhaps some tricky family background as well. I mean, I'm, I'm reminded of the, as a doctor, you know, that rule that you shouldn't operate on your own uh, uh, family members because there's all, now it's, it's become a bit messy. Um, it's hard to be objective and calculated. Um, and what if you make a mistake? Uh, but equally, um, you know, if it's someone who you had a huge amount of arguments with um, in the family who you're operating on, I'd imagine that would be tricky too. Um, so that's why it's an interesting dilemma. And I think Carla's really great point at the end there was was just the importance of context and um, you know context matters with this and and also the word you used was kind of the fluidity of it that, yeah. that things change that yeah. where we we vary in how much compassion we feel depending on the person depending on who where it is and when it is and and that's the same with self compassion so that sense that it it, it changes and moves yeah. and and uh, depends yeah and she mentioned a couple of really good papers so. Neff and Pommier, I think it was in 2013, something like that. Is that right, Carla? Yeah. yeah. Um, did an association just looking at strict correlations. And they looked at it in three different samples. And in undergraduates, there was just no correlation between self-compassion and uh, compassion towards others, which is interesting. Uh, but then in the community sample, it increased. But only increased to a correlation of 0.15, I think it was, which is small in... Uh, correlation land. <laughs> so you kind of think it'd be higher than that. Um, uh, yes. Which is interesting. And then there's another study done by Lopez and colleagues and they found that it was just non-significant. There was no relationship between uh, compassion and self-compassion when you use self-report measures. Um, however, in contrast to that, we know uh, Gilbert and colleagues, when they look at fears of compassion and the different flows, that those correlations seems to be, seem to be much higher between the constructs. Mm. But... Um, Mm. It's interesting because none of them determine target either, of course. Mm. And, and Carly, you made the point that with the undergrads, the correlation between compassion and self-compassion was low, but actually their means for compassion and self-compassion were higher, I think, than some of the other age groups. Was that...? The mean for self-compassion, yeah. mean for self-compassion. So it was the idea there was that the correlation between the two was, was non-significant, but the actual levels of self-compassion was still... Um, yeah, I mean, they put that down to, like, sort of age and maturity and perhaps uh, something happens there that, you know, you start to see the two as being more linked. I couldn't help but think, you know, do you reckon that coincides with the transition to parenting? Or, I mean, I've, parenting wasn't written down as a demographic. No. But what are you, your thoughts? Well, I guess as, as we, there was a lot of discussion about, yeah, things happen and, and sometimes difficult things happen and that can change how much compassion we feel for self or others but also positive things happen yeah. and we have other challenges that gradually you know things change and our, our compassion and self-compassion changes but um, I think we need to let these guys go on to their yeah, next yeah, yeah. Uh, lecture so um, thanks everyone for another great session thanks James thanks Dan we'll see you next week thank you Bye.